throughout history, man has been forming alliances to provide security and protection from opposing forces. During World War II, the Allied forces fought against the Axis powers to deter the evil regimes of Germany and Japan. The United States and Britain formed an alliance with Russia in a desperate attempt to stop Hitler's destructive advance. And Prime Minister Winston Churchill acknowledged the irony of this unlikely partnership with communist Russia, stating, I'd form an alliance with the devil himself if it helped defeat Hitler. In his address to the nation, Churchill said these words, No one has been a more consistent opponent of communism for the last 25 years. I will unsay no word I have spoken about it. But all this fades away before the spectacle which is now unfolding. The past, with its crimes, its follies, its tragedies, flashes away. The Russian danger is therefore our danger. And the danger of the United States, just as the cause of any Russian fighting for hearth and house is the cause of free men and free peoples in every quarter of the globe. Churchill then said that Britain would provide all possible military aid to the Soviet Union in its battle against Germany. It was a testament to the desperate situation confronting both nations that Churchill, a champion of democracy, would agree to an alliance with a typical, excuse me, a tyrannical regime at least as bad as that of Nazi Germany. There is an expression that has arisen over the years, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The believer in Jesus Christ need not make such a compromise. With God on our side, we do not need to make alliances outside of Christ. With God on our side, we do not need to make alliances outside of Christ. So the essential question to answer this morning is, who is on your side? Who is on your side? If God is for us, who can successfully stand against us? We're in Romans chapter 8. I want to draw your attention there again. We'll start reading in verse 28 this time and read down through verse 34. Again, the question is, if God is for us, who can successfully stand against us? Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. The first concept of our consideration of this passage this morning is where we left off last week at the end of verse 29. Take a look at verse 29 again, please. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. The first item of our Meditation this morning is this. God ensures our eternal life in heaven through the work of His Son. God ensures our eternal life in heaven through the work of His Son. And we see that clearly at the end of verse 29. He does all of this work of foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying us in order that we would be like His Son. That's the middle of verse 29. Like His Son. Just like conformed to the image of His Son. So that He would be, His Son would be, the firstborn among many brothers. And so Jesus, His work, leads to our being made like the Son. Jesus' work leads to our being one of His brethren. His work leads to us being part of God's eternal kingdom. The whole discussion of suffering that results in glory began while Paul was teaching about the biblical doctrine of adoption. He was talking about this doctrine of adoption in verses 12-17 through 17 of this text. And as part of that discussion, he starts to talk about the fact that if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. The suffering and the glory go together. But that was the, a topic that was coming up in the midst of discussing adoption. Paul had just stated that believers have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit confirming that God is our Father. Because we know that God is our Father, we understand that Jesus is our brother and we have been made soon kleronomos, joint heirs with Christ. Soon, that means together, kleronomos, heirs or inheritors we are with christ we're in christ joint heirs this is because god is our father in verses 18 through 27 there is suffering and groaning and confidence of glory in verses 28 through 30 we see that god is working through all of the suffering we have uh, he has purposed before time to make us like His Son. And we know that His work will be accomplished. It will be. Why? Because the actor, the initiator and finisher of everything that's going on in this passage is not me. It's not you. And it's not us. The actor, now I'm not talking about actor like in a play, or in a film, I'm talking about the one who does the work, the actor is God Himself. And He's doing this work of ensuring our eternal redemption. It is so much assured 
that in verse 30, Paul says that we are already glorified. It's as if it's already done because God is the one who is responsible for its accomplishment. And when God seeks to do something, God does it. He's not handcuffed. He's not sleeping. He's not unable. Whatever God therefore wills to do, He does. And His will is to glorify those who come to the Son. And it is going to happen. It's assured, not by our work, but by the work of the Son. The last phrase of verse 29 returns to this original discussion of adoption. That's why he brings up the firstborn among many brethren, many brothers. God is determined to make us like his son in order to make us joint heir brothers. Firstborn is used at the end of verse 29. It's prototokos. It means the significance is of um, Jesus' superiority. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. We see this concept so clearly, and I, I just love, and I think, May I recommend to you, if you have not at this point in your life memorized Colossians 1.18, that you make that a project this week. Listen to these words of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead or from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he might be, what does it say? Preeminent. In everything. And I want him to be preeminent in my life. I want him to be preeminent in my responsibility as a father. I want Christ to be preeminent in my responsibility as a husband. I want Christ to be preeminent in my responsibility as a pastor or a chaplain or a friend. One who would disciple someone else, someone who would care with, for someone else, someone who would evangelize someone else. I want Christ to be preeminent in all of these ways. It's not about me building my sphere of influence. It's about serving and rendering worship and pointing people to the one who deserves all superior worship. He is preeminent. It's Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. I would like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. This concept is so woven into Hebrews, chapter 2, it's very helpful to help us understand what God, through Paul, is saying in Romans, chapter 8. Hebrews, chapter 2. So in, in Romans 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purposes. Verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. Take a look at what it's telling us about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many, what does it say? 
sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. My friend, my brother or sister in Christ, without the work of Jesus Christ, we could not be made as brothers. We could not be made the children of God. We would not be fit for heaven. But he has accomplished this work. And for those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, he has made us brothers. And therefore he's made us children of God. And we're joint heirs with Christ. And we have an eternity. Sure. Because of us? No. Because of the church? No. Because of what Jesus has done. And according to God's divine, unalterable, unstoppable plan. God ensures our eternal life in heaven. How? Through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered death in order to sanctify us, to make us brethren. And because we are sanctified or made holy, He is proud to call us His brothers. He has made us fit for heaven. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. You can almost hear just a little echo back to Genesis 12. Remember Genesis 12 where God promised Abraham that He was going to bless all all the nations of the earth, how? Through the seed of Abraham? Well, who is that seed? That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question that comes after that is, who is fit for heaven? Who has the authority to be called the children of God and thus be the brothers of Jesus Christ? Well, John answers that very well in John 1.12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. God gave us this right by adopting us. And though we might suffer in this life in various ways for various lengths of time, it will be worth it all because glory awaits those who have trusted Christ. God has ensured the eternal life, our eternal life, in heaven through the work of His Son. As we go a little bit further in our study of Romans chapter 8, head back to Romans 8, we want to now see this second thought from our passage, and that is God is worthy of utmost praise. God is worthy of utmost praise. Look at verse 31, just the first part of it. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? Well, I would say this. We should be in awe of God's definitive blessing. 
we should be in awe of God's definitive blessing. Where God seeks to bless, He blesses. Nothing stops Him. No one stops Him. We should be in awe of God's determination to bless. What are these things? What shall we say to these things? What are these things? I would say this to summarize it. Now, the technical answer, before I give you the shorthand answer, the technical answer is it starts in chapter 1 and verse 16. That's the these things. We're not going to go into all of that. We've done it over and over in our study of Romans. But technically, the these things goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 16. The short answer to that question is, what are these things? It's God's unstoppable plan to bring us into a perpetual state of glory. God's absolute unstoppable plan to bring us into a perpetual state of glory. This is these things. And so, I ask you again, what do we say to these things? What should our response be? What do we say that God has done this and has offered this and has told us these things? Well, I want to answer that question not by offering my words. Because my words do you no good at all. I want to offer you the answer to that question by looking at God's words. So take a look, please, at Revelation chapter 5, please. How do we respond? How do we respond? Revelation chapter 5. And the reason we can use this passage and one other in the book of Revelation to give us some ammunition for how we ought to respond, what we should say because of God's glorious definitive plan to perpetually bring us uh, in, into a perpetual state of glory. The, the reason we can use this text to inform our thinking is because we have in this scene in Revelation chapter 5 a group of people that have been redeemed that are in the presence of the Lord, giving worship and honor to the one who is on the throne and to the Lamb who dwells in the midst of the throne. And so his wording there is absolutely uh, pertinent to our discussion of how we respond to God's definitive plan to bless us. Verse, uh, verse 9, verse 11, excuse me. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Ready? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits in the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the resounding response was what? Amen! Let it be so! God be glorified! God be praised! How do we respond to God determining to bless a wicked corrupt, broken, helpless sinner like me. God, You are worthy of praise. 
And it doesn't end there. God's Word informs us more. Look at Revelation 7. Same type of setting. A heavenly scene in the midst of some very difficult passages that God conveys in the book of Revelation. But we have this scene into heaven of those who have been harmed in life before the throne of God. Listen to these words beginning in verse 9 of Revelation 7. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, oh, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. That's justification, brothers and sisters. These people from all the nations, every variety of people, God has saved, robing them in white. They didn't deserve the white. They didn't earn the white They were granted the white robes because God justified them. Listen, they had palm branches in their hands. Remember that from Palm Sunday? Victory, victory, victory. Verse 10, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne. What does it say? They worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. So be it. It must be so. God gloriously is worthy of praise. How do we respond to these things? What do we say? Well, maybe like the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or like he says at the end of 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, but he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Yes. Yes. That's the yes of God. He is worthy to rule and reign. He is worthy of glory. Not just now, not just tomorrow, but forever and forever and forever. Maybe as Peter says, as after he talks about the spiritual gifts in 1 Peter chapter 4, he comes to this point in verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Will you say it? Amen. Amen. What do we say? We say glory to God. We say hallelujah. Hallelujah. How do we respond to these things? He's he's just told us that everything that we go through in this life, suffering, difficulty, it's all God's plan to make us like His Son. And it won't end with turmoil and pain. It ends with glory. What do we say to these things? God, you are worthy of my praise. God is worthy of utmost praise. Every 
ounce of my being, every ounce of my strength, every segment of my intellect, every corner of my emotions, everything. He's worthy of my praise. He has done it all. Our passage in Romans chapter 8 is about God. And it should lead us to worship Him better than ever before. Take a look back in Romans chapter 8 as we look at our final concept for this morning. I feel accomplished. We've accomplished two out of three of these concepts and we still have time left. Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. Our final thought for this morning, we must declare God is on our side. God is on our side. Look at verses 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Now, in a couple of moments, we'll talk about how we can know that God is for us. But before we get to that, I want for us to spend a few minutes trying to understand this. Who or what is against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we have to understand, well, who or what is against us? Well, there are lots of answers to this. We're only going to focus our attention, and ever so briefly, on seven of them. We're not going to define all of these and go down a long study of it. First of all, our flesh is against us. Well, that's pretty damning. My biggest enemy is me. Secondly, our sin is against us. It wages war against me, and sin does, in fact, condemn me. Sin does. Thirdly, guilt. I sin. And now I sense the guilt of sin, the weight of sin. This is me. This, it's, so, it's, it's in contrast to what I know about God. Guilt is an enemy of mine and yours. Death. Death is an enemy. Sin that results in, de- uh, in, in guilt hangs over our head this concept that at one point... I will die, and I will die a damning death. Which leads us to the fourth one, our fifth one, which is condemnation is an enemy. Condemnation. And sixthly, it would seem that tribulation, troubles, trials, sorrows, that these would be an enemy. Sin, guilt, our flesh, death, 
condemnation, trials, troubles, sorrows. This seventh one, I think we need to consider for a moment. Satan will team up with any of these and many more in order to stand against us. He exalts himself and opposes the plans and purposes of God. And because he exalts himself and opposes the plans and purposes of God, he opposes the people of God, the gospel of God, the church of God. He opposes the sons of God. He stands in direct opposition. And he doesn't care what or who he aligns himself with to accomplish his agenda. Good forces, evil forces. He doesn't care. We cannot, as Paul told the Corinthians, be ignorant of his devices. Satan tries to deceive He tries to discredit. He tries to discourage. He tries to divide. All while seeking to devour believers. He's ruthless. And he is tireless. He doesn't need rest like you and I do. He's a fallen angel. And therefore, he has a tremendous amount of energy and an amount of power that has been entrusted to him. We know these things. But you know what we also know? We know that the Scriptures give us confidence in this fight against the evil one. These will be on the screen from 1, Corinthians, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4. Listen to these words from verses 1-4. through 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, ready? And have overcome them. Stop. Them. What's he talking about? Well, he talks about spirits in verse 1. False prophets in verse 1. He talks about these contrasts of spirits in verses 2 and 3. And the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world in verse 3. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. How do we do that? Well, the context would tell us in chapter 5 and verse 4 and in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the overcoming comes through what? Faith in Christ. You have overcome them. Listen carefully to the end of verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All of these forces, all of these opposing uh, elements, they, they can come against us and they can come against us, but nothing, no one compares. With what? He 
who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not me who am in me. It's not you who is in me. It's not me who is in you. It's the Spirit of God in us. We have everything we need. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have everything that you need. Praise God. There are many who can attempt to stand against us, but we can ask the same question that David asked regarding Goliath. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is he? And I would say the same thing about anything that opposes God. Who, who are you? Who, who exactly are you? Who do you think you are? What exactly do you think you can do? And the answer is, not one thing that God does not ordain. Ask Job. Job didn't have it easy. It was miserable. But you know who had Job in the palm of his hand the whole time? His heavenly Father. You know who has you in the palm of his hand? If you're a believer, your heavenly Father. Who are you? What can you do? Oh, I might say, oh, I, I can do a lot. Look. Yeah, all right. Not unless my Father wants that to take place in my life. That's freeing. That's freeing. Listen to Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yes, yes. How about Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, which you'll hear uh, Hebrews chapter 13 in. Uh, Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Ah, who's on your side? Oh, let's, let's have an alliance. We're going to have an alliance. And that church, and this church, and that church, they're going to protect me. Well, there's nothing wrong. If you want to have alliance in churches, go for it as long as they're in Christ and surrounded by the Gospel and surrounded by the doctrine of, of Christ. Have at it. That's not going to save you. There's only one that saves. Do you know who He is? Do you know who he is? Who's on your side? Yeah. How do we know that God is for us? We'll look at this in more detail next week. But for this morning, let's look back in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 34. Again, I'm going to read it and then we're going to list them out. Verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Well, let's just list them. First of all, how do we know that God is for us? God gave up His Son for us. He could have stopped right there. Like the sentence could have ended right there and I would feel have, like as, as if I've been blessed beyond measure. But secondly, God provides lesser benefits as well. If, he, if He's given us His Son, won't He also graciously give us all things at the end of verse 32? Not only that, We are God's chosen people. God's chosen people. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God, the ones he has chosen. Who's going to bring us down when God says, that one's mine? What are we afraid of? That'd be nothing. Fourthly, how do we know God is for us? God has justified us. The end of verse 33, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Fifthly, God has removed the possibility of condemning His children. Who is to condemn? Who's going to do it? Well, let me just remind you. When you read Romans chapter 8 all in one sitting, you didn't miss this concept. When you start slowing down like we are, very slow, when you start slowing down, you forget maybe what you already read in the same chapter. But in verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you come to verse 34, reading it all in one sitting, you already have the answer without thinking. Who is to condemn? The answer is no one. Because there is no condemnation. No one, no thing. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is God for me? Yes. Why? How do I know? He's justified me and there is no condemnation. Number six, because the Lord Jesus died and rose for us in verse 34. He died and rose for us. And seventhly, I always want to say seventhly, that's a good one. The risen Lord Jesus, in His session at the Father's right hand, prays continually for me. 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 Peter, Satan has sought you and he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. You hear the confidence in the words of the Son of God? You will be restored. And you will then go and strengthen your brethren. Jesus, at my Father's right hand, at His Father's right hand, ever lives 
to make intercession for us, Hebrews chapter 7. Glory! Is God for me? Yes! He's praying for me! Now, when God prays for you, <laughs> what's going to happen? We've already talked about this earlier in the, in the chapter. Remember, we were in chapter 8 and verse 26. The Spirit prays for us in our weaknesses. He's, he's praying with groanings that can't be uttered. And God knows what is the mind of the Spirit. I wonder why. Because the Spirit is God. And when the Spirit prays, the answer is yes. When the Son prays, the answer is is God for me? Yes, He's praying for me in answering the prayer. There it is. What do I have to be afraid of? Nothing. That doesn't mean there won't be pain. It doesn't mean there won't be sorrow. And it doesn't mean there might not be a fearful circumstance. Something that produces anxiety because the physical circumstance is unpleasant. Not saying that there's no unpleasant circumstances in the life of the believer. The whole context of our conversation is suffering, but glory. Yes! Glory. Who's going to receive that glory? Every believer in Jesus Christ. Is God for us? Yes. Now the us is general. Who are we talking about? It is those who have been adopted. Those that have been adopted. Remember, adoption is what is at the heart of Paul's writing when he launched into this discussion of suffering and glory. There's a guarantee that the suffering will be worth it all for those who have been adopted into God's family. We will be fully eternally glorified. And we will be like Jesus Christ forever. We are His eternal brothers. How can we know that we are adopted? How can we know that we're adopted? God doesn't leave this to mystery. He answers the question. He's already answered the question. Verse 14, same text. Romans 8, look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. When we call upon Jesus to save us, God gives us His Spirit the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit leads us, sets us free from bondage. He enables us to call upon the Father and He testifies inside of us that we are God's children. When this is happening, led by the Spirit, freed from bondage, calling upon the Father, have the witness of the Spirit inside of us. When this is happening, we can know we are adopted. We can know that God is for us. In the desperate attempt to stop Hitler's advance, Britain and the United States formed an alliance with communist Russia. The Christian, with God on his side, 
need make no such alliance. We have the almighty ruler of heaven and earth on our side. No matter what the forces of earth or Hades bring our way, we can rest assured that we are as safe as if Jesus were standing right by our side. Because He is. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory that you have adopted us and assured us that you are for us. And while many will come against us, including ourselves, your purposes and plans will stand and we stand confident in the grace that is upon us through Jesus Christ. Continue your work in us. Assure us that we are your children. And Father, where there may be some among us that are not your children, our Father, we pray humbly, we pray passionately, we pray with confidence that you would turn them from darkness to light, turn them from the kingdom of this world and Satan to the kingdom of your dear Son. Make them your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.